Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. This show spends a great deal of time delving into what I consider to be existential issues threatening the future of this nation. All of them descended from the election of Donald Trump and from what he uncorked and let loose. While Trump's influence will wane, and there is evidence that it's already waning, the movement he created will surely outlast him. What's indisputable is that Trumpism is a cult, not just a personality, but of ideology. It's not a stretch to say that these people are not only fucking crazy, but very, very dangerous. So the idea that the rioters who stormed the Capitol on January 6th were engaged in, and I quote, legitimate political discourse would be laughable if it were not so fucking deviously misleading and insanely dangerous. It's legitimate political discourse to attack the seat of our Capitol and smash windows and attack police officers and threaten to hang the vice president and threaten to overthrow the election. It's insanity. And, you know, it's a, there's a circular firing squad where we attack Republicans, you know, the Republican Party that I want to get back to is the one that believes in freedom and truth and not one that attacks people who don't uh, swear 100%. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Ryan Nichols of Longview, Texas. Nichols was arrested on January 18th of 2021, charged with multiple felonies and misdemeanors in connection with his participation in the attacks. Nichols unsuccessfully sought release last December, pending trial. Video from Nichols' Facebook page played during his court hearing that day and shows the type of discourse on display that day from January 6th participants. I'm telling you right now, Ryan Nichols said it. If you voted for fucking treason, we're going to drag your fucking ass through the street. So let us find out. Let the Patriots find out that you fucking treason this country. Due to the incessant gaslighting of Trump and his RNC apologists, these folks have gone from dangerous criminals to persecuted political prisoners. So it's up to shows like Maya Culpa to keep the public reminded of what truly happened that day. Is legitimate political discourse per the modern Republican Party. If you had any doubt, and we told you this a hundred times before on the show, but now the Republican Party has put it in writing that they support the armed insurrection against the United States of America. This was a chance for Republicans to disown the violence. And instead, instead they said, nah, we're good. Because besides Cheney and Kinzinger, how many Republican members of Congress have spoken out against the RNC's resolution? It seems the DOJ had the same idea. Two other men from Texas have also been arrested and face federal charges for their alleged participation in the Capitol riot. The U.S. Attorney's Office charged Ryan Nichols of Longview and Alex Harkrider of Carthage with conspiracy and unlawful entry with a dangerous weapon, violent entry, and disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds. Nichols was also charged with assaulting a federal officer with a deadly weapon. The FBI says various social media posts show the pair at the Capitol and making inflammatory statements. Immediately after the Republican National Committee censored Representatives Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney for investigating the insurrection, accusing them of persecuting fellow Republicans who had, after all, simply been engaging in legitimate political discourse, the United States Department of Justice released previously unseen video of one of the insurrectionists participating in such discourse. Is that true? I didn't I'm, hear, I'm hearing no. reports that Pence caved. No I'm way. telling you, if Pence caved, we're going to drag motherfuckers through the streets. 
You fucking politicians are gonna get fucking drugged through the streets. Yeah. Because we're not gonna have our fucking shit stolen. We're not gonna have our election in our country stolen. If we find out you politicians voted for it, we're gonna drag your fucking ass through the street. Because it's the second fucking revolution. And we're fucking done. Court documents in the cases brought against some of the January 6th defendants facing the most serious charges yield information about communication and coordination among the defendants from different groups in advance of January 6, 2021, and shared memes that placed a bullseye on the U.S. Capitol on the day Congress convened to certify the electoral vote and aspirations to kill or kidnap lawmakers that were articulated by the rioters with disturbing frequency. If you're asking, is Ryan Nichols gonna bring violence? Yes, Ryan Nichols is gonna bring violence. Because I watched unarmed people get sprayed today. I got sprayed and pepper sprayed. I got fucking whipped with a baton. I was unarmed, unarmed. I got whipped with a baton. I got sprayed in the face. We had a 16-year-old girl that got shot in the throat and killed? You think that we're going to let that shit stand? No. We're going to be violent. And here's the second part, now that I got 48 of you on. Look, I'm not mad at anybody that reached out to me and said, Hey, if you need me, I'll be there. But here's the question I have for you. If you're willing to be here, if it goes down, why the fuck weren't you here with us today? Patriot. Many of you out there are veterans. And you're like, you say you wish you could have been here or you're messaging us and saying, hey, if you need me, I'll be there. I needed you today. Nichols, a Marine Corps veteran from East Texas, reportedly expressed interest in joining the Proud Boys before traveling to Washington, D.C. with his friend, Alex Harkrider. See, Nichols and Harkrider joined two other East Texans now under investigation. The feds found all four of them on social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and Snapchat. Prosecutors claim Nichols and Harkrider called for a second revolution, and Facebook posts show they had plans to go to D.C. weeks before the attack. Here's a different picture of the two at the Capitol during the siege. The location on the post shows they're in Washington, D.C. The text reading, we ain't done yet, we just just got started. Another video sent to the FBI shows the two forcing their way into the building. Nichols, the man wearing the yellow gloves you see there on your screen, has an aerosol spray can in his hand, which the Department of Justice claims he used to attack Capitol Police officers. Something to note, Nichols is a Marine, and he is well known here in East Texas for philanthropic and charitable efforts. He asked the public to make masks at the start of the pandemic, and he even appeared on Ellen, where she recognized his efforts to save storm victims in North Carolina. Nichols coordinated with other participants before, during, and after the riot, according to the government. Prior to January 6th, Nichols reported on intel he was gathering, passed along messages from group sources, joined several Zello groups which were active before and during the attack on the Capitol, and attempted to recruit others to join him in D.C., prosecutors wrote in a motion requesting Nichols' detention. Joseph McBride, Nichols' lawyer, explained Nichols' decision to bring steel-toed boots GoPro cameras, crowbar, and chest plate as reasonable measures to protect himself from Black Lives Matter and Antifa as he attended the Save America rally as a peaceful protester. I mean, 
fucking for real? We're due back in court on December 20th. Uh, right now, we have put a motion in that um, just talks about uh, one, the level of, of police brutality that took place uh, on January 6th. We went uh, to go protest. And, uh, you know, we showed up in good faith on January 6th to protest the election results, but never would have imagined we'd encounter the horrors we did on the West Terrace and in the tunnel that day. We feel targeted and hated by our government and are being punished in this jail as pretrial detainees. Many of us uh, here have been honorably discharged with no criminal history. Uh, I'm personally a United States Marine search and rescue specialist, and when I saw women being beaten and in distress, my rescue instincts kicked in, and I knew I had no choice but to help rescue them. As soon as I saw Officer Fanone in distress, I pointed at him and took action to help rescue him also. Uh, so my participation in Officer Fanone's event, no doubt, helped save his life. On January 6th, Nichols and Hawkrider made their way to the front of a mob and attempted to break through a line of Metropolitan Police officers guarding the tunnel entrance to the Capitol at the Lower West Terrace. The government accuses the defendants of taking a canister of pepper spray from another rioter and dispersing two blasts of spray at the line of officers. We will stop the steal. Today I will lay out just some of the evidence proving that we won this election. Later, Nichols and Hawkrider climbed through a broken window into a conference room and barricaded the doors with desks and chairs, according to the government. Then, the two men exited the conference room and Nichols allegedly took a bullhorn from another rioter and waved his crowbar as he gave a speech. They are labeling us as anarchists. They are talking about using lethal force against us as we have stormed the Capitol. They are talking about using legal force against what our kids has turned on you. What our kids has turned on you. We're live right here, heading down to the Capitol building right now. We're marching. There's millions, millions of Trump supporters out here. So, yes, today, Ryan Nichols, Ryan Nichols grabbed his fucking weapon and he stormed the Capitol and he fought for freedom. For allegory, uh, 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 election integrity, I fought. These are the people who have been lionized by Marjorie Taylor Greene and Trump himself as political prisoners. Ask yourself if you want to see this man pardoned and walking the streets. We have a January 6th committee that Nancy Pelosi is leading that is nothing but a political witch hunt on Republicans and Trump supporters all across America and anyone that was at the Capitol on January 6th. What's happening to these people being held in custody is wrong, it's unconstitutional, it's a violation of their rights, and it is an abuse that I call on every single member of Congress to start paying attention to. We need investigations, it's outrageous. The American people are purely upset, disgusted, and cannot believe this is happening in our country. Earlier in the hearing, Judge Hogan warned Nichols' attorney, Joseph McBride, against peddling false claims about January 6th being a false flag operation in his court. 
McBride earlier this year went on Tucker Carlson's show and falsely fucking claimed that a man wearing a red face paint spotted at the Capitol riots was clearly a government official who deliberately stoked violence to entrap Trump supporters. The first part of the story is the, the people who are on tape encouraging illegality, which is itself a crime, who have not been charged. What is tonight the status on that as of tonight? After months of investigation, Tucker, uh, these people still not have, have not been charged. We have multiple people on the ground, four in particular that we have identified. Let me just call one of these people out. Somebody who was tagged on the internet by sedition hunters and capital hunters as Redface45. This is a person who is dressed in Trump gear, in MAGA gear. He's covered in red from the head to toe. He's face paint, his face is painted, uh, uh, is painted MAGA red. He's got a Trump hat on, a Keep America Great Again hat on. Yet, he is clearly a law enforcement officer. He interacts with uniformed personnel. He interacts with agents in the crowd. He passes up weapons, sledgehammers, poles, mace. Some of those things come into contact with other protesters who have subsequently been charged with possessing dangerous weapons and or using dangerous weapons at the Capitol. That is clearly that is clearly entrapment. That is clearly the government creating conditions of dangerousness and entrapping members of the crowd to possess weapons and possibly use them for reasons that we cannot comprehend. Wow. The government clinched its argument that Nichols' pre-trial release would pose a danger to the American public by playing a Facebook Live video that the defendant recorded at 8.13 p.m. on January 6th following the mayhem at the Capitol. So if you want to know where Ryan Nichols stands, Ryan Nichols stands for violence. Ryan Nichols is done allowing his country to be stolen. And I understand that the first Revolutionary War, folks, it was violent. We had to be violent and take our country back. Well, guess what? The second Revolutionary War right now, the American Revolutionary War that's going on right now, it started today on a Wednesday. It's going to be violent. As early as November 20 of 2020, according to the government, Nichols told friends on Facebook, war is the answer to terrorism. Hope that democracy wins because war will be next. The narrative is already set for civil unrest. What happens next will not be good for this country. On December 24th, he reportedly wrote, any Democrat found guilty of treason should be executed. Any Republican found guilty of treason should be violently executed. And on December 28th, Pence better do the right thing or we're going to make you do the right thing. Again, on the same day, the time for games is over. Patriots will be in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. If Pence doesn't do the right thing, we fight. You know, the C in RNC doesn't stand for committee, it stands for cult. It's not the Republican National Committee. It's the Republican national cult. That is the only way you can explain how the grand old party would come to the conclusion that people who engaged in rampant mob violence, urinated, defecated, desecrated the Capitol, brutally beat up police officers, seriously injured more than 140 police officers lost their lives as a result of the events of January 6th. And the cult says it's legitimate political discourse. They've come to that conclusion because they continue to bend the knee 
to the former twice impeached so-called president, Donald Trump. The government also cited texts exchanged between Nichols and Hawk Ryder in the run-up to January 6th that shows Nichols was coordinating with other groups that were preparing for events at the Capitol on the day of the electoral certification. Among them is a December 14, 2020 text from Nichols telling Hawk Ryder that he was considering joining the Proud Boys. Two days earlier, the Proud Boys had roamed the streets of downtown Washington, D.C., attempting to provoke fights with counter-protesters and local residents following a pro-Trump rally. Nichols' lawyer told the court on Monday that regardless of his intentions, his client didn't wind up joining the Proud Boys, while Assistant U.S. Attorney Luke Matthew Jones noted that there likely wouldn't have been time to process his application. I mean, seriously, now there's an application to joining the fucking Proud Boys? What's truly frightening is that Nichols is just one man. Out there are hundreds of thousands just like him, waiting for the chance to avenge Donald Trump. His promise to pardon these folks, as well as his renewed calls for violence, should send a fucking shiver down the spine of every person bound by the constraints of moral human behavior. This is what we're up against and what the RNC is trying to whitewash away. To pretend otherwise is sheer fucking lunacy. And now for the main event. The prospect of renewed violence in the wake of Trump's calls for protests and his promise to pardon January 6th rioters is a real and present danger that has sent a collective shiver down the spines of security experts. Folks like Ryan Nichols have one thing on their mind, and that's fucking bloodshed. Forget about legitimate fucking political discourse. To these people, it's war. To understand this terrifying new reality, I reached out to former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence, Frank Fagluzzi. A return guest on Maya Culpa, Fagluzzi spent 25 years with the Bureau and was known as America's preeminent spy catcher. In addition, Fagluzzi was the keeper of the code and was appointed the FBI's Chief Inspector by then-Director Robert Moeller. Charged with overseeing sensitive internal inquiries, shooting reviews, and performance audits, he ensured each employee met the Bureau's exacting standards of performance, integrity, and conduct. Today, he writes a weekly national security column for MSNBC and will soon release his first book in January entitled The FBI Way, which imparts his lessons from guiding the Bureau into an overall study of leadership. He also hosts the amazing Beyond the Bureau podcast, which is a must-listen to, so please check it out. He joins me today on Mea Culpa as we begin to see, a, to see a fuller picture of how January 6th transpired and who was connected up and down the chain. But his main concern is dealing with a new wave of political violence from right-wing radicals and how we put the extremist genie back in the bottle. So let's listen now to that conversation. Okay, so Frank, in an interview on conservative talk show host Hugh Hewitt's radio show, Chris Christie the other day stated that Trump incited the January 6th riot to intimidate, at that time, Vice President Mike Pence. If this is true, it's an absolutely huge 
or as Trump would say, a huge allegation in that it places Trump at the head of a criminal conspiracy and leaves him open to prosecution. Do you think that Christie will testify now in front of the January 6th committee? And more importantly, does he have any actual proof? Yeah, I think your your last question is actually the seminal question, because whether or not Chris Christie is simply citing his opinion and, and look, my my personal opinion of Chris Christie is he's someone who's trying to ride that fence, ha, you know, have it both ways. So he you know, I can see him easily coming out with a strong statement in, in the media, like you just said, yep, he did it to intimidate Pence. And then when he's called to testify about that, I could easily say, well, I'm citing my opinion, very legalistic answer, right? Well, that was my opinion. That's my impression. And whether or not he was in the room with Trump and Trump said verbatim, we're going to put the screws to Pence by doing this mob scene and this attack. I, I doubt it. I doubt it. You, you know better than anybody, perhaps on the planet, that Trump's MO is this kind of arm's length plausible deniability from any kind of criminal connection. So I think it's impression. I think Chris Christie is going to ride that fence of impression and opinion. I do think he'll testify if asked about it, but I don't think he'll be the guy who, who nails, uh, puts nails in the coffin on Trump. You know, it's interesting because um, about two, three weeks ago, I was over at a restaurant with my wife and some friends. And we were over at this uh, restaurant here in New York City called Fres um, Fresco uh, by Scotto. Actually, Rosanna Scotto from, Fo from Fox. Uh, it's her family. And um, her brother, Anthony, another one of the you know, owners of the restaurant, comes over to me and says, in about a half hour, Chris Christie's coming. Because they always get celebrities coming in there, uh, which is, of course, why I go there. So... I'm like, ah, great. You know, I haven't seen him in a while. And I wasn't really sure how Chris Christie was going to react when he saw me, because obviously we spent quite a bit of time um, with, you know, with I did with Chris and uh, obviously with his wife, Mary Pat. And as we were leaving, their table was right there in the front. And so he jumped up and he gave me a hug. And he says to me, I'm so sorry for what you went through. I'm trying to get him onto the podcast. I texted him the other day, haven't heard back, but he's going to run, by the way, for president. You could, I guarantee that one. He already told me that he's, you know, considering uh, very strongly about this run, uh, especially if Trump decides to stay into the race. There is no love between Trump and Chris Christie. Let me rephrase that. There is no love by Chris Christie for Donald Trump. In fact, whether you like Chris Christie or not, he, like any normal human being, is absolutely fucking repulsed by Donald, by Donald's behavior, with all of the chaos that this son of a bitch is sowing each and every day, even without having social media. Think about that, how much more damaging he would be to this country if he still had his social media. But I bring up Chris Christie for that purpose because I am 100% certain that if asked to testify, he would absolutely do it. Now, I didn't know the answer to whether he has proof or not, which is, of course, why I was, you know, look, you are the author of Beyond the Bureau. You know this stuff. Your ear is to the ground. I'm just wondering if you heard that he has any actual proof that could do more than just basically corroborate 
the tens and tens and tens of thousands of documents that the January 6th committee already has, or the 300 individuals who already testified and their, you know, 2,700 hours worth of testimony. So, so the short answer, nope, don't have any special behind the scenes information with, with regard to Chris Christie's uh, knowledge or not. But I, I want to say this, if he if he's running and I, I'm eager to get your opinion on this, if he's going to run, let's assume you're right. And he's going to he's going to take a crack at the presidency. Um, again, I see an individual, a personality who may may despise Trump, but understands politics very well and understands that riding that fence between saying this stuff was inappropriate, but I'm not going to be the guy that that that, that gives criminal evidence against Trump because I need people to vote for me from, from all corners of the party. That's where I see him right now. That is just riding that middle because he, particularly if he plans to, on running for president. So let me respectfully disagree with you. Um, the way I know Chris Christie, he's an incredibly, as you stated, he's a very calculating politician. And right now, the wave is not riding in Donald's favor. We're seeing, even though it's not significant numbers, we're seeing oh, yeah. numbers falling as far as his popularity is concerned, even yes. amongst Republicans. Yes, we're, right? we're seeing a fissure. We're seeing a small fissure, a small crack starting to develop. I, I, I totally agree. Pence is, we'll, we'll talk about it later, but yeah, Pence making the statement at the Federalist Society, uh, Romney coming out, Mitch McConnell coming out, something's, something's beginning to happen. And, and whether, whether Christie sees himself as, as um, siding with the Cheney, Liz Cheney's and Adam Kinzinger's of the world that are, that are really doing the, taking the high road and doing the right thing, or whether he still tries to ride that middle. You're, you're telling me he may end up doing the right thing if he has the evidence? It, he'll do the right thing with or without having the evidence because it's politically expedient for him. What he needs to do is to be the guy, the first one out of the gate, to say what Trump did was wrong. I agree with Mitch McConnell. Donald Trump tried to create an insurrection. Donald Trump is responsible for the riot. Um, for the, you know, riot on the Capitol on January 6th. Donald this, Donald that. But legitimate stuff. I'm not talking about saying, you know, Donald Trump is the guy responsible for putting all the space garbage up in, you know, up, you know, in the atmosphere and so on, or X, Y, and Z. I'm talking about legitimate stuff, things that he's responsible. Donald Trump ripped up paper. He ripped up paper that doesn't belong to him. It belongs to the people of the United States of America. He's not authorized to do that. Donald Trump stole 15 boxes and sent them off to Mar-a-Lago, right? That now has to be, you know, picked up by the National Archives, right? These are all improper actions. And I believe that Chris Christie, now again, with Mitch McConnell's comments, with uh, many others, with uh, Adam Kinzinger, with um, Liz Cheney making all the statements, with the ripped documents, with all of the testimony that's now coming out, my belief, again, is that the ice is cracking. Yep. And I think Chris Christie wants to be there as the guy that basically took the sledgehammer to the ice mm -hmm. that Donald Trump fell through into the yep. frozen pond and yep. ride it all the way to the office of the presidency. 
Right. The question is, so the nature of a politician, of course, is to put that finger in the wind and figure out which way the wind is blowing. Right. But it's going to require and you mentioned, you know, the crack in the ice. If you're if you happen to be on a lake and it, and it starts cracking. Right. And you've got to figure out quickly which which where am I jumping? Am I jumping on that ice flow or am I jumping on this ice flow? And and, you know, it's going to require Christie to do something a little different. If you watched his re- the really good interview Nicole Wallace did on MSNBC with Chris Christie, um, that I mean, she she it was masterful. And he he was trying to have it both ways. And she was calling him out on it. Right. So he's going to it's going to require a shift for him, which he's quite capable of doing, becoming much more stronger and outspoken about Trump. And I hope you're right. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that he also knows about Trump using your analogy of whether to jump to the left or the right in order to extricate yourself from the, you know, cracking ice. He knows that Donald's too stupid to jump, that he doesn't believe that that God would allow the ice to break while he's standing on it because he, of course, is the next coming. I mean, that's really what a narcissistic sociopath is thinking. And that's what we all know about Donald, who is emphatically a narcissistic sociopath. Got it. And and ultimately, as in as in studying great literature, the tragic flaw of the tragic hero would would be your your own downfall. Your own character traits lead to your own downfall, and that that may be it. Sure, that's the story of Icarus, right? Yeah. Who with the wa- with the waxed wings decided he wanted to fly, you know, as close to the sun as he could. Hence, of course, the wings um, melted and he plummeted to earth and died. Exactly. That's Donald. Yep. Donald believes that he can fly. And we're going, we're going to show him, thanks to people like yourself and so yep. many others, out there speaking, telling the truth, showing the documentary evidence, talking about things that are actually happening instead of this right-wing Fox Media OAN Newsmax that makes up lies. It is all lies. If you watch it for 15 minutes and then you turn around and you watch, you know, CNN, MSNBC, ABC, NBC, CBS, and you say, I'm not even sure I'm in the same realm. You know, something I do for, because I'm, I I do this for a living, I do have to watch uh, Fox occasionally to the point of intolerance, which is about 15, 20 minutes. And I will tell you this, the lies are getting more and more brazen. Um, you know, a year ago, it required some research to, is that right or not? Now you sit there and go, my God, he just made that entire thing up, just entirely made up. Um, I'll give you an example. Tucker Carlson recently said um, NSA admitted that they were spying on him. A- absolutely not. They did not admit they were spying on him. But he just sat there and made it up. And, and repeat it over and over and over again until, fu- until their base who believed it the first time they heard it, now it's so deep sunken into their head. It's so true that it's in the Bible. So let me ask you this then, Frank. There's a deep concern in states like Georgia that the president's call for massive protests in those states where he is now under criminal indictment will lead to the establishment of very dangerous armed encampments and real violence. Do you believe it's Trump's intent to use his MAGA mob, uh, his MAGA mob to intimidate state and local law enforcement? And by doing so, what do you believe will be the outcome? All right. So we've gone from a question where you and I had different opinions. There's nuance, there's subtleties, there's there's theories. This question, I, I have no nuance or subtlety. I absolutely believe that Donald Trump intends to provoke violence again 
as he did on January 6th. And I believe that what we heard him say about the prosecutors, and it was prosecutors writ large with regard to Georgia, he's, you know, New York State Attorney General, Manhattan DA, calling them, you know, vile. And and I absolutely, when you call for the largest protest ever, when we've just had an insurrection, right? So hard to imagine something more large and, and impactful than that. And you do it around your own prosecution, Absolutely. And then we see the Fulton County DA request uh, FBI assistance for a threat assessment, risk assessment. Right. And I I was telling people, hey, just let's remember, FBI doesn't doesn't do building security. But but yes, they do threat assessment intelligence and they'll they'll do an actual physical security assessment. Yeah. That also tells me she may not completely um, um, feel assured by the Fulton County Sheriff's or the state authorities in Georgia. So she's looking very deliberately and publicly looking to the feds for help. This is a real threat, Michael. And I I absolutely believe he will try, he will try, Trump, if indeed he's indicted, you're, you're going to see him try to provoke violence. And I believe, you know, in a larger strategy, I think the party is also, and I think his associates are also looking toward November and the midterms. And I did a, I did a column for MSNBC Daily a couple of weeks ago where I laid out a very, very concerning scenario around the midterms where we have violence over the vote count um, in key Senate races in places like Arizona, Georgia and Florida. You know, what comes first to my mind is I remember about a month or so ago reading there was an article uh Online, you know, I get everything online. I don't even read paper anymore, right? Um, by Vox, and um, the writer was a um, uh, an individual by the name of Fabiola uh, Sineas, if I'm pronouncing her name right. But I found this article to be absolutely intoxicating. To be, I want to be honest with you here, intoxicating. Why? First of all, from the headline all the way through the article, really well done. Headline. Donald Trump is the accelerant. And that's what really struck me, which is why I ended up reading it. And it's basically a comprehensive timeline of Trump encouraging these hate groups and these individuals to engage in political violence. And Fabiola runs through this timeline, literally from things that he says to, you know, actions that were taken, not just by him. See, this is where Donald is so absolutely crafty. He gets other people to do it too, like Rudy Colludi Giuliani, like his idiot son, Eric, like his idiot daughter-in-law, Lara, who went ahead and they stole, they kidnapped the rally from this young girl, Jennifer Lawrence, this guy, Dustin uh, Beckworth, I think is his last name. Um, I mean, they, they hijacked their rally and turned it into a march. Then you had... Don't be Don Jr. off into another area, and it's on and on. And then, of course, Roger Stone and the rest of the whole Rat Pack, you know, over at, um, the day before at the hotel. Well, this was all coordinated, and that's how Fabiola runs it through this timeline. So every single person from Alvin Bragg now to Tish James to Fannie Willis to anyone that's involved in terms of indicting Trump, he's using these code words. He's using these code words to act as, again, the accelerant for more violence against these areas because that's just who he is. 
You know, I said it in my last podcast, I'm going to say it now. There's only, there's a line from the movie The Dark Knight. Some men want to see the world burn. Donald Trump wants to see the country burn because he lost the election. And he can't, his fragile ego will not accept it. So he'd rather see the country disappear than him just to go away. Go write your memoir like Barack Obama did, like the Bushes did, like every president before you. Instead of putting out some stupid fucking table book, basically shitting on our allies and talking about his love letters with Kim Jong-un. You know, I'm always trying to get Mary Trump to come on this show. Why? Because there's a, you know, a psychotherapist and, you know, being part of that family, even though she's really very much, she's been estranged from him because he doesn't really deal with anybody. I'd like to ask her certain questions about, you know, how one would put this. He constantly refers to these letters with Kim Jong-un as love letters. Now, Frank, you're a great guy. We've been on my show several times. We've spoken. We've met the whole nine yards. God forbid you write me a love letter. You and I are going to get into a ring and someone's going to go down. All right? I'm not interested in any love letters from you. I don't understand why he even uses that term. It's just fucking weird. Is it me or is, is it me or is it, or do you feel the same way? No, I think the behavioral science crowd, um, which, you know, I've, I've worked with throughout my FBI career, I, I think behavioral scientists would have a field day with this and are having a field day with it, Michael, because I think it goes toward his ego. I think um, he wants to be loved. And I, I mean, I'm not, look, I'm playing armchair behavioral scientist here, and I, I want to acknowledge that I, I'm, I'm an armchair behavioral scientist only, but um, here's a guy who was likely longing for the love and affection of his father. And he seeks that from strong men leaders. And indeed, there here comes Kim Jong-un, who rules with an iron fist, writing him allegedly pleasant letters, friendly letters. And that's enough to, to trigger Don saying, I, I have found affection in a strong leader figure. Um, that, that's, that's my guess as to what's going on. It, it's stroking his ego. Um, he, he needs that. And the problem is, from a national security perspective, what I've said repeatedly is that's dangerous for us as a nation when our our president was seeking the affirmation and affection of world strong dictatorial world leaders. That's that's a very scary place to be. But I, I want to I want to also address something you said about fueling the flames of, of violence, because, you know, we opened this up about talking about just being sick and tired of everybody being sick and tired of hearing the same threat, you know, being talked about and all of that. But I, I, I challenge anyone to prove us wrong with regard to Donald as a kind of radicalizer in chief, which I've said repeatedly in my appearances in my columns. And I, I'll go all the way back. And and yes, Ru, Rudy Giuliani saying at the infamous rally, we let's do trial by uh, trial by combat. Right. Uh, over and over again. There's a there's a here in Arizona, there's a guy running for Congress, Michael who just put out a video, I just tweeted it this morning, um, it. who says, we are at war. We are at war for God, right? For our children. That, that's, been, that's the language of radicalization. And I want to I go way back for, for Trump on this. Um, you remember the El Paso Walmart shooting? Yes. Terrible tragedy. Young man shoots up mm -hmm. the quote unquote, brown invaders uh, coming into the Walmart to shop across the border from uh, Juarez, right? And um, I wrote a New York Times uh, op-ed three days before the El Paso Walmart shooting because I saw something like that coming. And I, I said, we've got a president talking about brown invaders 
Brown invaders. And, and the language he's using is going to result in violence. And three days later, this young man shoots up the El Paso Walmart. When they get into his, his uh, online activity, his writings and ramblings, what do they find? Verbatim, the language of Donald Trump, brown invaders, kill the invaders. Um, yes, he can and is inciting violence. And don't think for a second that he doesn't know it. He just realizes that if he uses certain terminology that they can't attribute, oh, it's a, ter it's a terrible thing to happen. But quite frankly, this is what's going on in our country and on and on, right? You're referring, I think, if I'm not mistaken, to Ron Watkins, the guy from Arizona that put this thing out, right? right who, who people, right, that's right. Who people who, uh, sometimes associate with being Q. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's bullshit. I mean, that's the sickest thing. And somewhere along the line, his goal is to radicalize the people there in his district that are going to be voting for him. And how do you do that? You always turn around and say, you're in jeopardy. Your future is in jeopardy. Worse than your jeopardy, because as parents, right, what do you care about more than yourself? Your children, right? I mean, they they God, do it. God and, that's and, God and children. God and children. Is the, God and children. That's God, that's no, you, no, no, no. Frank, there's three things. God, children, and guns. Because, you know, these, these guys are just all fucking packing. You know, right now you can't buy ammunition. It's almost like a, it's a back order wherever you go, you know, and they're triple charging because there's none available. They're stockpiling for war. And if that doesn't scare the shit out of my listeners, if that's not going to get into the mind of all Americans, Republicans, Democrats, independents, and people who aren't even registered, you got something coming. You got your next door neighbor who you're not even aware is doing it, has an, a, a shed out in the back that could have 50, 100,000 rounds of ammunition. And out there, you can pick up fully automatic machine guns like it's nothing, right? You can pick up whatever the hell that you want. Yeah, yeah. I, we've got a woman running for governor here in Arizona, Michael. Uh, her, her, essentially, the sole item on her platform is scaring the hell out of people about the border invasion, right? That's what she refers to it as. She's going to put National Guard in Arizona on, on the border. She's going to literally build the wall, she says, in Arizona, I, no explanation as to how she's going to do that. So we, we have a really good uh, columnist here with the Arizona Papers, a guy by the name of Tim Steller. He goes down, he talks to the three county sheriffs that, that are on the border. There's three counties in Arizona on the border. He asks each of them, are we are we being invaded? Is this at the point you know where, where the GOP is telling us it is? Two of those sheriffs said, nope, it's not. And, and then one of them went, well, it, you know, we're having a rough time. And I guess... Perhaps if you want to characterize it as an invasion, it is. So two of the three sheriffs scoffed at the notion that we're being invaded. Yet we have we have this as the, one of the major planks in the in the platform. Yeah, and it's, it's there's no there's no words for it. It's just made up more bullshit innuendo without you know lacking any factual accuracy. But I want to ask you this then: in a recent episode of your podcast, The Bureau. You put forth the case for why Jeffrey Clark should be indicted and not immunized. How was this a mistake by the January 6th committee? And why did they do it in the first place? All right. So the good news is we're not at the point where they've actually done it. Here's, here's what prompted my, 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 uh, my podcast. And, and by the way, my most recent column, again, for MSNBC. Zoloff Lofgren, who's, who, I, who I think is a great Congress uh, member, Zoloff Lofgren says on CNN, 
uh, I think last week, to Erin Burnett. She says, almost pondering aloud, you know, one of the things we should consider about Jeffrey Clark is, you know, maybe offering him use immunity, something like that, right? I quote it um, in the podcast and in the uh, column. That got my attention, Michael. Okay, I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. So it's not just that I'm saying that Jeffrey Clark, let's, re- let's remind your, your savvy uh, listeners, Jeffrey Clark, former DOJ, official head of the civil division at DOJ under Trump, under acting Attorney General Rosen, tried to do an end around um, of Rosen to go straight to Trump with plans on how to overthrow the election, uh, suggesting the Georgia phone call, all, all of that, right? And now he's claimed the Fifth Amendment, asserted the Fifth Amendment over 100 times to the committee. And all Zoe Lofgren did on national TV, pondering aloud, you know, one of the things we should consider is offering him use immunity. So I do an education piece first, and I say, here's what use immunity is. And by the way, don't let anybody tell you that use immunity still effectively allows you to prosecute somebody because the courts have actually rejected that idea recently uh, with Blackwater guys, with Oliver North famously. Why? Because you have to prove that if you go ahead and prosecute somebody you've offered use immunity to, you've got to prove to the court in a Castigar hearing that all the evidence you've got is completely independent of anything that that immunized defendant told you or implied, right? It's very, very hard to do. Okay. But here's Here's a theory that's come up. And I, I talked with a, a fellow analyst on MSNBC, Joyce Vance, about this. She had a great theory on Zoe Lofgren. Because you might say, what? Zoe Lofgren's a lawyer. Why would she say this? Aren't they coordinating with the DOJ? Why would the committee make a decision on immunizing somebody that would impact the ability of DOJ to prosecute him? What is going on? And I, I said, they're either not coordinating, which is scary, or they did coordinate, and DOJ said, yeah, go ahead if you need to offer use immunity. We're not going to prosecute this big fish, Jeffrey Clark. That's very disturbing. But there's another theory that Joyce Vance came up with, which was Zoe Lofgren floated this out there because something's broken with the coordination with DOJ. She's frustrated. Again, this is a theory. She may be frustrated with DOJ on prosecutive decisions, and she's trying to wake them up and say, you know what? We might just offer you some immunity to a big fish. What say you, DOJ? That's that's a theory that unfortunately could be true. Well, unfortunately, um, I agree with her. Uh, and I'll tell you, I can only look at, again, my own personal experiences. How, And I talk about it all the time. Some of my listeners say, we've heard it, we've heard it, we've heard it. And I'm trying to do the same thing, for example, that Fox is doing. I'm trying to repeat it enough times that people start talking about it. And I'm going to talk about it again. My July, the letter that was written by Ted Lieu and Hakeem Jeffries, July of 2020, asking for an investigation, Michael Horowitz, OIG, DOJ, to open an investigation. And again, I just don't say it because it's beneficial to Michael Cohen. It is a pure and prime example of our democracy in peril and the fact that the DOJ... It's like a limp dick. It's just, it's fucking worthless, right? And why they've done nothing. Why Michael Horowitz? So on MSNBC, I was with Alex Witt. And prior to my appearance, Ted Lou was on. And she's the one who brought it up and asked Ted, well, what happened? Oh, you know, DOJ, they don't, they don't really tell us. They don't answer. Fuck you. Bullshit. 
You're a fucking member of Congress. Don't tell me that between you and Hakeem Jeffries, right, that they're not going to tell you whether or not they're intending on opening an investigation. How about calling and asking? But they didn't do that. They both dropped the ball because they got political expediency out of, you know, writing that document. They got on television. They talked about how infuriated they are. So then Alex follows up. And then there turns out there's an answer. Well, let me call it a non-acknowledgement acknowledgement uh, of that letter stating that we're sorry, 18 months went by, you know. um, And then it goes on to a whole nother topic that has no relevance and completely unresponsive to the letter. Well, now we're about a month post that interview. Have you heard anything? The answer is no, right? You're talking about an unconstitutional remand of a citizen to prison at the direction of the president through a complicit and willing attorney general. That's, that's not America. That's not democracy. That goes right back to what you talked about, the strong arm tactics of a Vladimir Putin, of a Kim Jong-un, of a Mohammed bin Salman and others. Michael, I, I want to, I, I, you know, I spent 25 years in, in the system, FBI, of course, answering to DOJ. I have tremendous faith and belief in the system. Um, and I'm giving every benefit of the doubt to DOJ. And I can sit here and give you various clues that I think DOJ is doing, is looking at high level conspiracy and coordination, but I can equally give you some observations that make me think maybe they're not. And I I do get concerned about while, while they're doing their thing quietly behind the scenes, more violence is being provoked, more disbelief and lack of credibility is being garnered in the, in the system on both sides, by the way. Um, and the longer you wait, the longer you erode the institutions responsible for preserving our values. So, um, I'm giving them some space and room. Uh, I do have contact with you know certain officials who lead me. You know they're they're very very careful and I, I, and very tight lipped. But you know some of the body language seems to indicate. Yep, look, we're doing our thing. We're doing our thing. Okay, okay. I I continue to say I'm not seeing the kind of coordination if, with the select committee. So if the select committee member Zoe Lofgren is saying on national TV. Uh, maybe we'll offer Jeffrey Clark use immunity. I get very, very worried about what DOJ is doing. Yeah, and the problem right. is the longer that they continue this inaction or the appearance of inaction, the more that the that the DOJ's reputation and belief that there actually is real, you know, um, law going on here is eroding. And you know, look, it's, I understand you're a, you know you're. You worked in that in that division, and these are people who you know you consider to be the professionals, and these are your colleagues. That's because they ne- that's because they never went after you, right? Once they start to target you, and then you have two members of Congress, and I've reached out to both offices, Ted Lewis and Hakeem Jeffries. Fucking crickets, crickets. How could you have crickets when a citizen, forgetting it's me? Right. It could be you next, Frank, because you said something that the Supreme Leader doesn't like. It could be anyone, any any journalist. It could be any television, um, you know, reporter or moderator. It could be anyone that the Supreme Leader thinks 
is or has on his hit list. Well, if in fact that he does run, and if God forbid a million times, and I don't believe he's going to run, but if hypothetically he runs and he wins, I don't know. I'm, I'm leaving the country. I'm not safe yeah. here. No, I, Michael, I have to tell you, you that that is the perhaps one of the strongest arguments that, to be made is that it could be any of us if we get into an authoritarian regime and and we see the kind of abuses that Donald Trump wanted and tried and to did. institute that. No, 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 Frank, and, Frank, well, change it. And did, did it yeah. to me. So just yeah. use me as the example, because if he could do it to me, Rest assured, my friend, you're fucking next. And everybody else is next, too. No argument there. I can't can't argue with that. Let me move on, then, for another another area about the FBI. Because the FBI announced yesterday that it's probing a meeting that took place just before the January 6th insurrection between the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Now, you called it a case of intersecting insurrectionists. Do you believe these far-right groups were working in concert as a planned insurrection force? Um, And if so, who do you believe was calling the shots and planning this aspect of a larger plot? There's the big question. So the easier one for me is absolutely, I see see some some fairly hard evidence of meetings of cross-communication. Um, there's a group of uh, really savvy private intelligence analysts that that I uh, associate with. They can talk. They talk to me about communications that and meetings that seem to have happened. So so fairly easy for me to go. Yeah, I do think I do think there was some level of coordination across these groups. What, what, but the groups, I mean, Proud Boys, Three Percenters, Oath Keepers. Yes. The larger question you asked, the sixty-four thousand dollar question, as they say, is who the hell brought these groups together and and coordinated this. I do not believe this was random. I've said repeatedly they needed the power and surge of that crowd to make the violence happen. In other words, if you if you had, let's say you had a couple of dozen Oath Keepers, Proud Boys and Three Percenters show up, even armed, um, and try to walk on any given day, try to walk into the United States Capitol and do do harm to people, um, they're they're not going to be very successful without thousands of Americans surging the barricades. So why am I saying that? That crowd, that surge had to be coordinated along with the tactical guys, right? They go, they go together. They don't, they can't happen in a vacuum. You need the crowd as almost a, not only a distraction, but as that kind of battering ram figuratively to get you in the building that to me, that's a coordinated effort. And let me now continue with your theory on the coordinated effort. What do we know already? And I'm not coming up like what others do with speculation. I'm talking facts. We know that these people that entered the Capitol, that stormed the Capitol, that were trying to take over the Capitol, they knew where they were going. They actually had a roadmap inside to Pelosi's office. They had it to the, you know, to the Senate chamber. They had it to Mike Pence's office. They knew exactly where to go. That had to be coordinated. You know, I worked in the Capitol for almost two years when I was in college. I got lost every day. Right. One hall, second hall, third hall. You know, I didn't have ways back then in order to get me from place to place. These people knew exactly where they were going. It is true. These people knew where they were going. Someone got them a map or gave them access to the Capitol in order to 
identify where they were going. On top of that, we also know that they had weapons stored in Virginia in case that they needed, which is right over the key bridge. They would have been back and oh, yeah. forth in 15 oh. minutes, 20 minutes, yeah, and no, so on. Right. That's not that's not theory. That's 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 solid. They had quick reaction forces in, staged in various hotels and places around the, around the district. Yeah. And then we also know that the day before, the night before at the Willard Hotel, there was a massive meeting. So do me a favor, Frank. Remind me who was in that Willard Hotel. And let's well, see whether or not we can start to try to piece this together in terms of who was coordinating this. I mean, I know Roger Stone was there, right? The AKA dirty trickster. Yeah, but you've got to have, so, well, let's, let's not forget Steve Bannon, right? Oh, let's never forget Steve Bannon. Let's not forget Bannon. But, but when I look at this and I, and I go, who, who's got some tactical law enforcement or military background, right? And one of the names that comes to mind, and I and I want to be right up front here. This is uh, some place where I have no hard evidence, but somebody like Bernie Carrick, with with a, a strong law enforcement leadership background, who understands tactics and strategy, um, well, he's in the mix here. He's in the mix here. Um, so I, I I think Bannon is a major major player. I think Roger Stone we know is connected to these to some of these groups at least, and has been associated with them. Um, and then if you're looking for somebody who actually can talk tactics, police work, um, you got to take a look at Carrick. What, what do you think? I can't disagree with you because I have no hard evidence. I haven't seen any documents that would do it. But you're right. Somebody coordinated, um, not just from a tactical standpoint, but, you know, from oh, the point well, hold of. On. Let, me, let me if we're going to talk. So we covered the law enforcement ground. Let's go to military. How how can I forget a gentleman by the name of Michael Flynn? Right. You, you want to talk military strategist, understanding and whacked out just completely now, completely off the charts. Crazy. Michael Flynn. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to believe that all of these people were in Trump's inner circle, you know, and remain in his inner circle, which and, to me in the position of national security advisor for Flynn. Yeah. yeah. Which is uh, I, I know there there were no words, you know, to describe it. He was a wannabe dictator surrounded by people who saw themselves as like the Himmlers, the Goebbels, you know, of, you know, of the Fuhrer, that they were going to somehow be at the upper echelons of, you know, this new regime that was going to be, you know, the new United States of America. And it's and people don't understand just how close we really were. To losing our democracy. And if they really figured it out and they really listened to this and they really accept this for what it is, which is fact, you'd be, you would truly be scared shitless. But let me just move on for a second because the January 6th committee is now in possession of White House records that show that Trump spoke with Jim Jordan the morning of the insurrection. Now, despite we all know, blah, 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 I'm Jim Jordan. Blah, 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 blah. I've never I seen... See. Jim Jordan stutter and babble and, you know, mince his words the way he did with that question, right? We know what they'll say. I spoke daily with the president about, you know, all manners of topics related to the running of this nation, as if Jim Jordan is really running this nation. I mean, he gives himself a lot of, a lot of credit and, and so on, a lot of pat on his own ass. In truth, 
What do you think that they talked about? And how likely are we ever to find out the truth? All right. So uh, we're engaging in some conjecture here. I agree with you from a, gosh, if you're sitting in a class learning about an interview and interrogation and uh, indicia of deception when you're doing an interview with somebody, you play that tape the video of Jim Jordan responding on air to the question of whether he could remember talking to Trump, you know, before, during, or after that is classic textbook. Um, You know, uh, well, again, he's, he's lying in that, in that video. It's truly just, you know, astounding. All right. Now uh, here's some good news. And then here's some not so good news. I do see clues that the FBI, in their questioning of major players, as they go through now well over 700, uh, maybe we're at 800 by now, I don't know, uh, defendants in the in the uh, Capitol attack. I see evidence of, because NBC News got their hands on an FD302 interview, FBI report uh, form, of one of the uh, Oath Keepers. The question was asked of this defendant, do you know anyone in Congress or a congressional staffer? You know, are you communicating with anybody like that? That that's an eye-opening question. Why? Because from my experience in a nationwide all hands on deck FBI investigation like this one, senior intelligence analysts are creating and drafting the what they call the collection list, right? We we need to fill these gaps. They're actually telling agents, ask the following questions if you come across a, an interview with an oath keeper or et cetera. That's a that's a that question was not just out of thin air by that FBI agent. I do believe they're looking at congressional connections. Now, you asked the question, what do you think the likelihood of accountability and consequences is going to be? Here we go right back to DOJ, Merrick Garland, and the willingness um, and the, 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 the mindset of holding people in office accountable. And I get the balancing act. I get it. I I, and I, 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 the balancing act for DOJ, Michael, is we got about 30 percent of the nation that's just r- really on the verge. And, uh, you know, with regard to Trump followers, and, and maybe I'm giving them too much credit for 30 percent. I don't know. But if we come out and start handcuffing um, sitting members of Congress and uh, we got to we got to get this 100 percent right. And all, as you said, all um, somebody like Jim Jordan has to do is go. I can't remember. I don't know. Because they don't have the content of the conversation, right? There's not a wiretap on these people. They have phone records, but they don't have content. He just disassembles, ah, hems and haws, and you lack you lack that evidence. I want people to understand that you can't just drag people off in handcuffs. You gotta have some solid evidence and, and an indictment. And so um, I don't know. I don't know. Ultimately, let's go back to something earlier in the conversation, that crack in the ice, that fissure that's developing in the GOP. That, and I hate to pin any hopes, by the way, on the GOP, but that that if that keeps going, if that crack widens, if if we, we now have more GOP people seeing the future of their party as not with Trump, more likely the accountability will take the place of Jim Jordan going away eventually. But do I have high hopes? Is hope a strategy? No. And not only is it in, incredible, it's, it, it, to me, it's just incredible that 
he will never tell what that conversation was about. You're right, though. He'll take the fifth. He just won't answer. I don't remember. So what we also know, which I just find so disturbing, I just I find it disturbing is the fact that the DOJ and the committee, they haven't even subpoenaed him at this point in time. And we know from a year ago, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think they've even subpoenaed him yet to testify. And we know for a year already that Jim Jordan engaged in conversations with Trump multiple times. That was his own words. How they didn't already request that he come in. So take the fifth in front of the nation and then beat him up the way they beat me up at the House Oversight Committee. Really? You don't know? You don't remember what you're talking to the president about on the day of an insurrection? How can you be a member of Congress? I have an idea. Let's not, let's not worry about Jim Jordan. Let's turn around and let's censor Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger because they claim that it's an insurrection. Well, well right. And you know, you know what's coming. If, if, uh, if the GOP seizes control of the House and or Senate in November, um, you're going to see hearings like this, and you, they're going to force Democrats to say, I'm not showing up for this charade. And so it's going to be it's going to be a circus. Um, it's it's really I, I can't tell you how dire a situation we're looking at right now. Yeah, it is. It is dire. And that's that's why I'm so frustrated, because to me, I see it very crystal clear. I know Trump so well. I know exactly what he's thinking right now. I know he wants to see violence in Georgia, in D.C., in New York. I know he wants it. The same way he sat like a petulant child clapping his hands. Yay, yay. Look at all of those people out there wearing MAGA shit in Trump 2020 and fighting for me. Look at that. Um, I see on television that one of my people, my people, right, good people, these were, you know, these were legitimate. This was a legitimate, um, what, what did they call it? A legitimate political, political discourse, discourse, right? Yeah. Look, he just hit the fucking police officer in the head with a steel baton. Yes, he did it for me because they stole the election from me, even though I, I know that they didn't steal it. But I need to say, because I have a fragile baby ego, they stole it from me. This is this is really scary stuff. And we have never, ever in the history of this country, we've never been um, at a precipice like this for losing our democracy, all because of one man. Well, I, I remind people we fought a civil war. Right. We fought a civil war. That's about as bad as it gets. But I don't want to see another one. Um, and I, I, I go back to something we talked about earlier, which is this notion of scorched earth that Trump seems to have, that if I can't win, I'm going to destroy the place. It's almost like if you've you know, you remember with your kids taught being toddlers and they've maybe they've played with blocks and they've made a big structure with the blocks and you say, hey, we got to go now. It's time. It's time to go. We can come back to that later, but we got to go. And they look at you and they just knock all the blocks down. Right. If I have to go, I'm destroying the place. And, and so that that's exactly what I fear is happening with Trump. Right. But remember, though, the Civil War was about human rights, whereas what Trump is doing now is about democracy. Right. You know, uh, that's it's a it's a very big difference, at least the way that I see it. And especially, in fact, the fact that I know Trump the way that I do. He wants to destroy democracy. He wants to replace it with him and his family and his sycophantic followers at the helm. But let me just move on for a second, because 
The RNC labeled the January 6th attack as the legitimate political discourse in their resolution censoring Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney. Now, when you first read those words from the RNC, what thoughts went through your mind? Is the GOP now forever broken? Do you think that it's going to break to the point that people are going to say, I've had enough, no more, simply because they're calling what we all know to be an insurrection, an attempted coup, now a, you know, a legitimate political discourse? Because personally, I don't think that they can come back from this in any way. Discuss with me. What's your thoughts? Yeah. So first of all, I mean, I always got sick to my stomach when I when I saw that that statement, um, this kind of canceling of their own people first and censuring Cheney and Kinziger. But more importantly, really more importantly than individuals, the notion that what we saw on January 6th was some kind of legitimate political discourse. Um, it's a reshaping of truth. It's a re it's a it, it is a complete fabrication. And so I can't, because of my background, Michael, I keep referring back to international terrorism. Um, what we're talking about here is a radicalization to the extreme. And, I, you know, people who choose to believe, you know, that what, what went on on January 6th was not an attempt to overthrow our democratic form of government and the peaceful transition of power have now been, their thoughts have been legitimized, fed to them, and now legitimized by the party itself, by the party itself. And, you know, just in the last 24 hours, we've seen Trump come out and say, because Mitch McConnell, who rebuked this, by the way, good for him. What does Trump say about McConnell? Uh, he doesn't speak for the party. You know, it's Trump reasserting himself going, I, I alone speak for the party. They do what I tell them to do. I don't believe for a minute that um, that Ron, um, um, what's her Ron name? Romney Ron McDaniel. Uh, thank you. That she came up with that language herself. I don't believe that for a minute. As she, that you, was you shouldn't. That yeah, was and, and you shouldn't. That was to her. Yeah. And it so, is the question of what well, uh, you know is, are they forever broken? Forever is a long time, but I will say this. Um, I believe the future of the Republican Party now is not up to things like um, indictments, arrests, convicted, uh, accountability that we all want and need. I believe now their future is in their hands and they will dictate their future. And if it's if that crack in the ice keeps going, if people like Pence, maybe Chris Christie, again, hate to pin hopes on anybody like this, McConnell, maybe if that keeps happening, Maybe someday, not soon. You don't you don't de-radicalize people quickly. Let me assure you. But someday can they come back? Yes. When will that happen? We may or may not be alive, Michael. Well, the sad part is that if we don't do it or do something before these midterm elections, there will be no January 6th committee. You know, people like um, Mark Meadows, you know, or, um, you know, a handful of other of these GOP, you know, individuals, Jim Jordans of the world, they've already said it. The first thing that we're doing when we take over the House, we're shutting this shit down. End of story. That's a Donald Trump. That's all in honor and service of their supreme leader, Donald. You know, that's what he wants. That's what we're going to say. And that's a dangerous thing for a politician to say. You have an ongoing legitimate investigation. And yeah, they can me, shut it down and are threatening to shut it down. And worse than that, they're going to hold the January 6th Democratic committee members 
Oh, responsible. They won't, they won't have committee assignments. They won't forget it. Yeah, I, I, if they even are able to run again, Kinziger's not, not running again. But let me let me just play this out quickly. So, yeah, let's say they take control of the House. The committee goes away. That's a given, right? Here's my question. It, it, this is damned if you do, damned if you don't for DOJ prosecutors. If they move... You know, you're aware that they, they, by a matter of policy, they don't want to impact an election, take any action, you know, 30, 60 days before an election. I, I, and absolutely they should not, right? Because if they start putting big people in handcuffs, say uh, September, October, before the, the midterms, you could, you run the risk of energizing the Trump base and, and turning them out more than ever before. And you'll be accused of impacting the election. So I get that. So we, that's an argument for moving far faster than September, October, number one. There's another way to look at it, which is, yes, we know the committee is going to go away. Yes, we anticipate that at DOJ. So what we're going to do is we're going to start convening our grand juries after they go away. So no one can claim we impacted the election. And then we're going to start handcuffing people. That, that, that's, I, I'm, I, I have a feeling that discussion is going on at DOJ. Yeah, and I have a funny feeling that I don't particularly give a shit, you know, as far as whether somebody thinks that it's right, it's wrong. You cannot allow this thing to fester. You can't allow it to just sit there and brew because the more that this thing brews, yeah. the more it boils over and the more damage it's going to do. And I don't give a shit what any of them say. Our democracy is in serious peril right now. Totally. And if they don't you. see it too, they yeah. shouldn't be sitting there, you know, um, with members with those, with those little fucking pins, you know, members of Congress. I just, I really have a problem with the fact that this thing is dragging its feet people are losing confidence in our department of justice in our law enforcement if i hear from one more person how donald trump is teflon right he is not teflon he is he's a he's a man he's a sick man he's a pathetic man and at the end of the day he needs to be held responsible and it's their job and if merrick garland is too scared to get the blood on his hands fucking quit and let somebody who's a little more interested in seeing justice prevail, let him take the seat of attorney general. But, you know, as we're moving forward here, in the wake of the censor, um, uh, Mitt Romney wrote the following. Shame falls on a party that would censor persons of conscience who seek truth in the face of vitriol. Honor attaches to Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger for seeking truth, even when doing so comes at great personal cost. My first question is how sincere can Mitt be in his denunciation when Ronna McDaniel, the RNC chairwoman, is Romney's cousin and he put her in that position? Secondly, what happens to so-called rational Republicans in the wake of this resolution? Because we saw on that same day Mike Pence push back against Trump at the Federalist Society where he received a standing ovation. And that's why I say that Trump's ice is cracking. Do you see a window here as the schism widens between the insurrectionists and traditional Republicans? So although I am a professional cynic and I've, I've had to, in, over the course of my career, be the guy that sees and anticipates worst case scenarios, I indeed do see a crack developing. No question about it. Me too. Should we stand, should we stand up and applaud Mitt Romney for, as a guy who, let's be honest, wants to have it both ways, wants to have his cake and eat it too? Yeah, that, that's who he is. He's a politician, um, like it or not. But understand in this environment what it took for him to say that, right? 
Could it have been stronger? Absolutely. Could he have called for the, you know, the, the RNC to retract the statement? Yes, but he is trying within his world and his capabilities to do the right thing. Um, we shouldn't lionize these people. They're, they're not heroes. But you know what? I will take what we can get, Michael. And I do think, as I said, the, the future is in their hands of their own party. And they got to figure that out. You know, I got I want to tell you, I spent a lot of time with Mitt Romney when he was running, you know, for president and so on. Um, he happens to be a very decent man. He and his wife, um, Ann, and the kids, I got to know them all. Spencer's Wick, his um, you know, finance guy. I spent an enormous amount of time with him. He's actually a decent man. And I was so proud of him, even though I've been a Democrat my whole life, even though I had been forced by Trump to help with Romney and before that McCain and so on. I was very proud of him for standing up and what I would implore other Republicans there in the House to do, or, you know, um, in Congress, stand up as well and denounce something that you know is absolutely 100% improper. It's wrong. It's anti-American. It's anti-democracy and so on. But, you know, Frank, as we're coming to the end of the hour, I have one last question for you. And it's a doozy. So I want to go to big picture time here for a second, because there's now indisputable proof that Trump presided over a massive criminal conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election. Um, and when he couldn't make this happen, he incited this violent insurrection. When do you think that we'll see the wheels of justice start to finally hold this man accountable? Right? When will the Teflon start to fall off? Or will this just become another Mueller report with a whole lot of fucking smoke and no real fire? All right. So there's a lot there. The, the, the question really has been the thread running through our conversation, right? We spent yes. the last hour talking about accountability. When, by whom, how is it going to be the GOP? Is it going to be DOJ? What role does the select committee have? And you use the word indisputable proof. I And again, you and I are both lawyers. Uh, I spent my career making cases. Okay. Uh, indisputable in our minds. Yeah, I got that. Yep. Yep. Um, public information so far, damning, you bet. Understand the distinction between what DOJ needs to go to a grand jury, get an indictment, but more importantly, God forbid they get an indictment and they don't win the case. Holy cow, really bad. So they got to prove beyond a reasonable doubt in a courtroom that Trump or his people in his orbit did this. Okay, we're not there yet. And, and DOJ, by God, better be working on, on getting there. Um, but uh, let's understand what you and I can easily call indisputable proof doesn't necessarily mean DOJ's got it to convict. They need it to convict. When is that going to happen? I, I have no absolute idea. But I, here's the thing. I take Merrick Garland at his word in that in that speech he gave about we, you know, we're, we're looking at the top. We have we're going to look at the top. Um, that he's gonna he's gonna go down trying. I I absolutely believe he's gonna go down trying. By that I mean he's going to try, and if it causes him to go down, he he'll 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 go down. But he's he's going to try to do it. That is my personal opinion. And my big concern is after the three hundred, and I say this all the time on the podcast. I've said on television, they've interviewed over three hundred people. 
Each interview is approximately nine hours, 2,700 minutes, 112 and a half days of continuous round-the-clock testimony by DOJ, by, uh, by the January 6th committee. And what they're looking for is they're looking for the one piece of paper signed by Donald that's on parchment paper, right, that says, I started the insurrection, I wanted to be president for life, blah, blah, blah. And one thing Donald took away from his early, early years in business when he employed Roy Cohn, the famous mob attorney, never have your fingerprints on anything, right? So they're going to have to build a case based upon people's testimony, people who were in that orbit who were telling you what Donald Trump was saying and thinking simply because you're not going to have a letter. You know, most crimes, you know, are there's that real documentary evidence. It's got somebody's name on it, a signature, a movement, uh, this paper. With Donald, he never had an email address. So, yes, I understand it's a little more difficult. No problem. I get it. So bring him up on the dozen charges. Indict him on 12 counts. Don't indict right. him on one, right? right. You know, even here in, the, in New York, and this has been out there quite a bit, one of the things that the DA and the AG specifically are looking at is the way Donald valued his personal financial statement, including adding that his primary apartment, the triplex at Trump Tower, was worth like $250, $300 million. And he did that based off of a um, formula that his apartment is 33,000 square feet, and it's $10,000 a square foot. First of all, there's nothing, there's nothing in that building that has ever traded at $10,000 a square foot, even right. assuming that that's accurate. Right. The apartment's 11,000 square feet. Yeah. So you're going to tell me the guy who built the building that lives in the apartment doesn't know what the square footage of his house is? Is yeah. that not enough? So let me let, let me say this. I, I, I know I know we're running out of time, but yes, the mob, you got the mob boss, the mob boss approach to life, which is no emails, no conversations, you know, the look, the nod, the wink. Yep, that's him. But let's not forget, with regard to needing paper or some damning evidence, there's two parts to proving that he wanted to overturn a valid election. Number one was people in the room. Will, who will say, and I believe we're getting that testimony. I do. People in the room who say, yeah, God darn it. Uh, he was saying, yeah, I'm calling. He called Georgia. We got that. He wanted to, you know, the protest. Yeah, all of that. But then the people in the room who are going to say, and comma, we told him there was no fraud, right? Because until you have that, you got a guy who, who will claim, I had a reasonable belief that there was fraud throughout the states and that we needed to look at it. That's what he's going to say. We need those people. And I believe we're getting those people to say, we told him there was no fraud. You can't do this. Don't need an email for that. Need the guy testifying. I told him no fraud. Whether that's Bill Barr, whether that's Rosen, et cetera, et cetera. I think those people exist and I think they're going to talk. Okay. Well, Frank, thank you. As always, your insight is unfortunately too spot on. Um, but I want to thank you. And um, obviously, I will be calling you again to come on because there is just so much stuff that's going on, uh, bad stuff that's going on in the country. And you really do have your um, ear to the ground. So thank you for um, helping to enlighten this to my listeners. 
Yep, a a anytime. And thanks for giving us truly unique uh, insights. Appreciate it. Be well, Frank. You too. And now for today's mea culpa. In speaking with Frank Fagluzzi, it is reaffirmed in my mind the importance the DOJ plays in bringing some real fucking accountability against Donald Trump and the actual perpetrators of January 6th. Until these people see the inside of a courtroom, they will continue to present a real threat to our collective security. Last week, it was announced that a new unit within the DOJ will be dedicated to investigating and prosecuting domestic terrorism. After decades focused on foreign terrorist groups, the Justice Department has struggled in recent years to allocate law enforcement resources to keep up with the rapidly growing number of federal investigations into violent domestic extremists. The January 6, 2021 insurrection was the most public example of that homegrown threat, which has rapidly metastasized. FBI officials say their domestic terrorism investigation caseload has more than doubled from 1,000 to 2,700 over the last 18 months alone, forcing the agency to increase personnel by 260%. That's a strong start, but what winds up happening is we investigate the bottom of the pyramid. So folks like Ryan Nichols, who are undoubtedly fucking dangerous, but have little connection to what's happening at the top of the funnel where Donald Trump's rhetoric and calls for violence become operationalized. Until we tackle this and put out the burning dumpster fire that pushes this rhetoric, we are continually at his mercy of finding and thwarting folks just like Nichols. That amounts to finding a needle in a haystack and we will be rushing from one emergency to the next, hoping that we can stop the next Timothy McVeigh before it's too late. But first, we must be honest with what amounts to legitimate political discourse and what amounts to terrorist threats. We have a party that is enthralled to Donald Trump, allowing him to broadcast his worst intentions on an industrial scale. Until we shut this down and put these people behind bars, all the investigations by the DOJ won't amount to anything beyond a finger inside a cratering dam. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. <laughs>